Turning back in the Word of the Lord tonight to the passage that already we have read, and that's the book of Revelation and the chapter 7. So the seventh chapter of the book of Revelation. If you have been here over a number of Lord's Days, then you'll know we've taken some messages, number three obviously tonight, on back to the basics. And we've looked at the Bible, we've looked at the blood of Christ, and tonight we're concluding with the blessed hope, the blessed hope, and that of course is the hope of heaven. The hymn that we have sung there, Will the Circle Be Unbroken? It's hard if you've lost family members and you know they've gone on to glory. Hard to sing that without some kind of reflective tear in your eye and you're thinking of them. And as the hymn paints the picture, I'm sure you can identify with a lot of what is being said in that particular hymn. But for the child of God who has gone on ahead of us to glory, well, it is well with their soul. That's for sure. And it'll be a glorious reunion if it's well with our soul, if it is. And then we can meet them in that glorious home awaiting in the sky. And it's that home that we are thinking about here tonight. In the book of Revelation and the chapter 7, and our emphasis will be on the verses indicated, verse 13 through to the verse 17. But let's bow again before the Lord in a further moment of prayer, ask for His help on the preaching of the Word and on the hearing of that Word as well. Heavenly Father, again we seek Thy face, and we thank Thee that we come to the book of God. We're not left with speculation. We're not asking somebody to read a palm here and tell us what is in the future. We're not coming to some other person who claims that they have knowledge of what is going to happen, and they've made certain predictions, some of which, because they're so general, actually sound as if they did come true, but then they can't really go wrong when they make it such a fudge, and they don't get into specific detail. But we thank Thee, our Lord Jesus, not simply made general statements and made other pronouncements, but those pronouncements He made were of a very specific and particular nature. And we thank Thee for those that we have in this book of God before us tonight. We thank Thee that we can look into the future through the biblical telescope, and we can take what He has said as absolutely guaranteed. He has told us that His Word shall endure forever. In fact, heaven and earth shall pass away, but My Word shall not pass away. And right through to that new heaven and new earth, that Word of God will it's established, it will stand still, it will endure. It is always the voice of authority on our living here in this life and on what we hope to happen in the world to come. So help us not to be going down lines of idle speculation and dead ends of man's opinions and philosophies, but may we rather ask the question, what has God revealed in His Word? What does God say to my soul about this subject? And tonight, what does He say about this glorious place that we call heaven? Guide our thoughts, guide our feet, and may each set of feet in this building. May they find themselves on the road to heaven, having called upon Christ as the sinners we are for His mercy 
to cleanse us from sin, to get us off the broad road onto the narrow way that leads to heaven and to home, the abode of the blessed and almighty God. Answer prayer, seal the word to our benefit, and may Christ in all of it be magnified. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Anybody who's a parent, or maybe a grandparent, even an uncle or an auntie in the building tonight, you will have at some stage one of the children within the family, and they'll have come to you and they'll have said, Daddy, Mommy, whatever your title is, draw something for me. And they just imagine that you, out of your head, will be able to conjure up exactly what they have in their minds. In fact, just the other day we had, well, we've had grandchildren back with us all weekend, Friday night a squad, Saturday morning another squad, Saturday afternoon another, which meant that over the weekend we've had all of the grandchildren, not all at one time, otherwise it would be absolute bedlam, the kind of thing I like, but that didn't happen this time around. But on Friday night, some of them came to me and said, Grandam, and they held me a felt rectangle, cut me out with a pair of massive scissors, a rabbit. And I'm thinking, all right, let me get the um, juices here flowing so that I can think as to what are the essential parts in a rabbit that could be cut out in this piece of felt. And one request became three requests, and so before you knew it, you had three rabbits there cut out of felt rectangles. And I'm sure you can identify with that. Some people will say to you, as well as to me, can you paint me a picture of God's heaven? And I'm thinking whenever I'm asked the question, well, do you realize what you're asking me to do? You're actually asking me to attempt the impossible, to paint the unpaintable, and to describe the indescribable, because by myself I cannot do that. Well, maybe you'll say, well, preacher, if you can't do it, can you tell me about someone who can possibly help me in this regard? And I say, no problem. What I would do is, I would direct you, the person asking the question, to the Apostle John. And in the opening chapter of this book of the Revelation, we read chapter 7, in the opening chapter, John uses the words, I saw twice over. In Revelation 1 and 12, in Revelation 1 and 17, I saw. What did he see? Well, he saw right into heaven. And in the second verse of the same chapter, he assures us that he bare record, so he noted down under the inspiration of God by God's authority, he noted down all things that he saw. So when I come to the writing of John, I know what I'm going to have here are word pictures of that glorious place called heaven. And one of the very best insights into this house of many mansions, who was there, how they got there, what it is like when they get there, one of the best insights we find in our text for tonight in the book of Revelation, in the chapter 7 and the verse 13 through to the verse 17, and we'll read that again now. And one of the elders answered, saying unto me, what are these which are arrayed in white robes? And whence came they? And I said unto him, Sir, thou knowest. 
And he said to me, These are they which came out of great tribulation, and have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. Therefore are they before the throne of God, and serve him day and night in his temple. And he that sitteth on the throne shall dwell among them. They shall hunger no more, neither thirst any more, neither shall the sun light on them, nor any heat. For the Lamb which is in the midst of the throne shall feed them and shall lead them unto living fountains of waters, and God shall wipe away all tears from their eyes. These are words that I often speak on around a grave. Whenever we have a graveside service in one of our cemeteries, I will turn often to Revelation chapter 7, verse 13 to 17, and say that here for a little time, what John is doing is he is pulling back the curtain and inviting us. Look in. Here's a view of heaven that you need to see. The first thing we're saying tonight is that the picture that he gives us is that of heaven as a place of replenishment a place of replenishment. And what we're saying here is based upon Revelation 7, verse 16 and 17. They shall hunger no more, neither thirst any more. 17. For the Lamb which is in the midst of the throne shall feed them and shall lead them unto living fountains of waters. If you've lived on this earth for any length of time, you'll have known a bit of trouble. In fact, the longer you live, the more trouble actually you'll come across. And you'll quickly learn that what we have is a place of unrest. We've got a great quaking pit of dissatisfaction. That's this world. In fact, Proverbs 30 and verse 15 is a pretty good commentary on our earthly experience. There, Solomon writes, the horse leech hath two daughters crying, give, give. So there are desires, give. There are longings, give. There are yearnings, give. Many of those desires and thoughts and yearnings, they are selfish, they are sensual, they are sinful, but they're bubbling up in the soul of man, and so many of those desires, they go past unfulfilled. You see, You're promised much in the world. The world tells you the cisterns of this earth, they're full to the brim, they're overflowing. There's all you can ever yearn for and ask for, and it's available in the world, but it produces, promises much, produces very little. Go try and build your happiness upon this earth. You know all the things that you hanker after? What you would love? What you think would make life enjoyable, far more pleasurable than it is today. And so you could go out there and gather up money and property and land and cars and clothes. You could take education to yourself and health and added beauty. You could make a grab for, oh, I'll have honor, I'll have rank, I'll have reputation here. I'll get popularity. I'll have crowds of friends. Take everything your mind can imagine, everything your eye can desire. And you know something? After feasting your heart on all of these bodily appetites that this world offers, do you know what you'll be forced to confess? 
You'll be coming out of that all by saying what Solomon said back in Ecclesiastes chapter 1, the verse 2 and the verse 8, and again in chapter 2, the verse 11, and in case we missed it, in verse 17 as well. And Solomon says, having had everything the world offered, there were no boundaries in his life, there was nothing beyond the peel, there was nothing outside of his reach. He said, having tried it all, vanity of vanities. All is vanity. The eye is not satisfied with seeing, nor the ear with hearing. Behold, all is vanity and vexation of spirit, and there is no profit under the sun. The work that is wrought under the sun is grievous unto me. Solomon tells us, it's all hollow, you know. It's empty. It's unrewarding. It is totally unsatisfying. It's all weariness and disappointment. It's vanity. It's vexation of spirit. Those are his words. And so he had concluded, having tried everything, there's nothing of real substance that I can show for all of the expenditure of my time and my energy. There is nothing of any bargaining power that I can bring to the judgment and say that will weigh well for my soul. There is nothing out there of any worth for eternity. And of course, centuries later, Jesus put these words on record in the Gospel of Mark. What shall it profit a man if he shall gain the whole world and lose his own soul? All the world offers is just fanciful and foolish and fatal mirages, and we think we have cornered it, and we're about to grasp it, and it just disappears in front of our eyes, drains through our fingers. You see, the hymn writer, he discovered this, and so he lamented, I tried the broken cisterns, Lord, but ah, those waters failed. Even as I stooped to drink, they fled and mocked me as I will. And to convince your own heart of the utter emptiness of what this earth affords, go and take a trip into all of the bomb-torn, blood-splattered, famine-stricken, devastated regions of the world, and there are so many to choose from. Ukraine will be the one on everyone's lips. Not so long ago, Yemen, Niger today, or Somalia, or up into the Kurdish compound in northern Syria, where those people have suffered under a relentless, barbarous campaign of genocide at the hand of Erdogan the Turk go into the homes of those who have been brutally robbed of their loved ones during the campaign of genocide in her own country in Northern Ireland, dangle the carrot of materialism in front of their faces, wax eloquent on the vast potential that's in this world, speak enthusiastically of the unbounded pleasure this earth is waiting to give them and see the kind of reaction you get. They'll weep. And if their natural emotions aren't curbed or restrained, they'll lunge at you. Say, what kind of foolish talk is this? And why is that? Because they know you're dragging nothing in front of their eyes but a vile phantom. You're 
cruelly teasing them with bubbles that have already burst in their faces, and they have nothing to show for it. They know the bitter realities of life on this earth. They have seen the undeniable proof that Eliapaz in Job, the chapter 5 and verse 7 said, man is born unto trouble as the sparks fly upward, and they have seen it in their lives. This world so full of trouble. They don't share your enthusiasm. They don't appreciate your eloquence in describing its wonderful potential to live in this earth. They have discovered is to eke out an empty existence. But heaven, what a difference. There are no selfish, sensual, or sinful desires there. No need goes by unfulfilled. No desire passes ungratified, a place of no scarcity, one of total satisfaction. And so we read in Revelation 7, 16 and 17, in these glowing terms, they shall hunger no more, neither thirst any more. For the Lamb, which is in the midst of the throne, shall feed them and shall lead them unto living fountains of waters. Dr. Bowman, took up his pen and described heaven on the basis of how the Bible brought it to his attention. He said, it's held forth to our view as a banquet where our souls will be satisfied forever. The beauties of Jehovah's face, the mysteries of divine grace, the riches of redeeming love, communion with God and with the Lamb, fellowship with the infinite Father, Son, and Holy Ghost, being the heavenly fullness on which we shall feed. And this is fullness for sure. Way back in Old Testament times, David looked forward to this and longed for it. And in the Psalm 17, in the verse 15, here's his testimony, As for me, I shall behold thy face in righteousness. I shall be satisfied when I awake with thy likeness. There's an old congregationalist preacher a couple of centuries back in America, Reverend Henry Ward Beecher, and he said, beat on, O heart, yearn for dying. He said, I've drunk at many a fountain, but thirst came again. I've fed at many a bounteous table, but hunger returned. I've seen many bright and beautiful things, but while I gazed, their luster faded. There is nothing here that can give me rest, but when I behold thee, O God, I shall be satisfied. Not long ago in the pulpit here, we had mentioned words that were written by Mrs. Anne Cousins that summed up the life of one of the greatest ever preachers that Scotland produced, Samuel Rutherford, administered in a little village at Anworth, down at the bottom of Scotland. And her hymn or poem, we have it in her hymn book in part, but it ran to 19 verses. But one of the verses was this. O Christ, He is the fountain, the deep, sweet well of love. The streams on earth I've tasted more deep. I'll drink above, there to an ocean fullness. His mercy does expand, and glory, glory dwelleth 
in Emmanuel's land. That's what we're reading about tonight in Revelation 7 and verse 17. The Lamb which is in the midst of the throne shall feed them and shall lead them onto living fountains of waters. No wild goose chase here. No running after mirages that disappear here. No mocking cisterns of earth here. They will be led onto living fountains of waters. A multitude of blessings wrapped up in all of that. We shall hunger no more, neither thirst any more, for the Lamb shall feed us and lead us onto living fountains of waters. This is a picture of replenishment. That's heaven. But then secondly, heaven is a place of respite. A place of respite. In heaven, every need is supplied. We have thought of that. But every ill is also removed. That's where the respite comes in. Again, check it out in Revelation 7, verse 16 and 17. They shall hunger no more, neither thirst any more, neither shall the sun light on them, nor any heat, and God shall wipe away all tears from their eyes. Today we'd have liked to have had the sun shine all the way through because we were dodging a lot of showers. Would have been beautiful to have unbroken sunshine. We rely upon it. Light and life and health are wrapped up in the rays of the sun for us. And yet I don't need to tell you that overexposure to the rays of that sun, even though it is a very beneficial planet, overexposure, highly dangerous. Too much of it overcomes us, makes us faint and dizzy and blind and can even kill And it's that kind, overexposure to it, that shall be taken away. In heaven, there's no need of the Son because Christ, who's described, and this is one of his many, many titles in the book of God, he's described as the Son of Righteousness. He will shine upon his people. No man has seen God at any time, John asserts, in the first chapter of his gospel, in the verse 18. And that's true because no man, draped in the robes of his humanity, those of flesh and those of blood, has ever been able to look directly into the face of God and live. I think of a very intriguing incident that the Old Testament talks about in Exodus chapter 33, verse 18 to 23. And Moses, he calls on God and he says, I beseech thee, show me thy glory. And God says... You can't see my face because no man can see me and live. And he says he'll show a portion of himself from the back to Moses. But my face shall not be seen. Thou canst not see my face. And neither we can. Because this old frail body of flesh that we wear tonight would never survive the exposure of the face of God. We have to be shielded from it now, but not in heaven. Not in heaven. That Old Testament saint, Job, spoke so enthusiastically about that day that was coming for him beyond the grave, looking into eternity he did. And Job said, For I know 
that my Redeemer liveth, and that I shall st- he shall stand at the latter day upon the earth, and though after my skin worms destroy this body, yet in my flesh, listen to the words, shall I see God, whom I shall see for myself, and mine eyes shall behold, and not another. I'll see him in eternity. And praise God, Job was right on that. Our Lord Jesus Christ desired, and he writes it down in John 17, 24. It's part of that high priestly prayer of his. He says, Father, I will that they also, whom thou hast given me, be with me where I am, that they may behold my glory. Paul develops that theme. And in 1 Corinthians 13 and 12, he says, Now we see through a glass, darkly. Things are blurred. There's a lot of obscurity. We get the outline, but not the detail. But he says, but then, but then, face to face. Now I know in part, but then shall I know even as also I am known. Sometimes we sing, only faintly now I see him. With the darkling veil between, but a blessed day is coming, when his glory shall be seen, face to face shall I behold him, far beyond that starry sky, face to face. In all his glory I shall see him by and by. We mentioned the poem written by Mrs. Anne Cousins a moment or two ago. There are many verses not contained in our hymn book. And here's one. The king there, in his beauty, without a veil is seen. It were a well-spent journey, though seven deaths lay between. The lamb with his fair army doth on Mount Zion stand, and glory, glory dwelleth in Emmanuel's land. As we sung today in our opening hymn, what a day that will be. The redemption of the body will have taken place. The soul will have been strengthened with all heavenly power. The eyes will have the eye salve of glory upon them. They'll see everything. We'll be at home with our God, who's a consuming fire, whose countenance shines like the sun shines in its strength and yet. Far from being afraid in his presence, we will stand in the light of his glory. We will drink in the splendor of his person. We'll be filled right up to the overflow with exceeding joy. They shall see his face, is what Revelation 22 and the verse 4 tells us. Marvelous moment that will be. Correction. Marvelous eternity. Marvelous eternity. When all ills and all infirmities, all error and all evil, all frailness and all fleshliness will be taken out of the way. The glorious shining of the face of the Son of God will ensure that. A little child filled the heart of a grieving mourner with some joy and real happiness. By saying, as that little child pointed up towards heaven, simply said, there will be no graves there. 
plenty down here. One for each of us. But no graves up there, no grief up there, but the glory of God. John Charles Ryle, first Protestant bishop in the city of Liverpool, he said, Blessed be God, there shall not be one single tear shed within the courts above. There shall be no more disease and weakness and decay. The coffin and the funeral and the grave and the dark black mourning shall be things unknown. Our faces shall no more be pale and sad. No more shall we go out from the company of those we love and be parted asunder. That word, farewell, shall never be heard again. There shall be no anxious thought about tomorrow, he said, to mar and spoil our enjoyment. No sharp and cutting words to wound our souls. Our wants will have come to a perpetual end. And all around us will be harmony and love. I hope you're looking forward to that. I am. This V and this old passing, this gnarled, this broken world has nothing to remotely compare with this. And so heaven... It's a place of replenishment. Not only that, a place of respite. And thirdly and finally, it's a place of regulation. A place of regulation. You'll see, looking again into our text tonight, Revelation 7 to verse 17, that as well as feeding those redeemed people in heaven, Christ has the task of leading them. For the Lamb, which is in the midst of the throne, shall feed them and shall lead them onto living fountains of waters to be led not by the nose but joyfully not under compulsion not by constraint but willingly to be led by the Lamb of God Jesus Christ what a wonderful experience that promises to be following at his heel, we'll be given a conducted tour of the great sights of heaven. Here's the pure water of life, that pure river from which it flows. Here's the throne of God and the throne of the Lamb, and that river with its crystal clear water is proceeding out of that throne. Oh, here's the tree of life with its twelve manner of fruits for the healing of the nations. Here are those twelve gates of pearl with the names of the tribes of Israel inscribed upon them. Here are the precious stones and the foundations of the wall of that city. Here's countless myriads you'll never be able to appreciate just how many of ministering angels. And here's that great multitude of those who are the ransomed and healed and restored and forgiven who are now glorified saints have come from earth or now in heaven why did he come there because they have all washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the lamb many loved ones have I in that heavenly throng they are safe now in glory and this is their song Hallelujah, tis done. I believe on the Son. I am saved by the blood of the crucified one. Can you appreciate what it will be like to meet them again? In different circumstances to which we parted here on earth? 
in different conditions to what they were in. Maybe the body, maybe the mind affected by disease while they were here. And then to join with them in these songs of the highest praise. And of course, in our conducted tour of heaven, we can't ever forget about the grand council chamber of heaven, where God the Father and God the Son and God the Holy Ghost, they sat in blessed concord together in eternity past. They drew up together the blueprint of our salvation. They decided upon it. They delighted in it. Those three members of the mysterious Godhead. What a chamber that is and what records it contains. The plan of salvation. It's the very thing the angels want to look into. Are mesmerized by, can't understand why the Godhead, pure and holy and infinite and righteous, should ever want anything to do with us created beings who have done nothing but sin. It's an astounding document, this grand covenant of grace, sealed and signed and delivered by virtue of the fact that God Almighty devised it and God Almighty delivered it. Powerful covenant that rescued us out of the clutches of the devil, out of the corruption of sin, away from the catastrophe of eternal separation from God. Precious covenant it is, soaked as it is in the precious crimson blood of Jesus Christ. And what a great and invigorating tour it's going to be when we are going through glory and the Lamb shall lead us onto living fountains of waters. And when with the ransomed of Jesus my head, from fountain to fountain I then shall be led, I'll fall at his feet and his mercy adorn and sing of the blood of the cross evermore. It's a land of satisfaction. It's one of splendor. It's a land of solace. It's a place of song. It's an area of service. It's a land where the Savior reigns supreme in all of his sovereignty. That is heaven. That is heaven. And yet, in a certain sense, this isn't heaven. Do you know why? Because the experience of this wonderful place, we're back where we started, cannot be entirely pictured. This side of eternity, it defies description. A man was visiting the famous Carlsbad Caverns in New Mexico for the very first time. Now, his wife was with him, but she had been through the caverns before. And as they're going forward, they're seeing the scenes of dazzling and breathtaking beauty. And he kept saying, isn't this wonderful? Isn't this wonderful? We were at the Somme not that long ago, and one of the Canadian guys was using the same word again and again and again. Everything was amazing. That's amazing. This is amazing. And something else was amazing. Well, here's this man in the caverns, and he's saying it's wonderful. And the further in they went, the more beautiful the sights became. And eventually, when they reached the king's palace in there, the husband turned to his wife and he said, Why haven't you told me about this? I couldn't, she replied. I couldn't. 
I couldn't find words adequately sufficient to describe it. That's heaven. Maybe the words in 1 Corinthians 2 and verse 9 give us a little indicator of that. I have not seen, nor ear heard, neither has entered into the heart of man the things which God has prepared for them that love him. We speak of the land of the blessed, that country so bright and so fair, and oft are its glories confess, but what must it be to be there? We speak of its freedom from sin, from sorrow, temptation, and care, from trials without and within, but what must it be to be there? The question tonight, of course, is will you be there? Are you headed for heaven? Are you? This book is plain in saying, who is prohibited from entering heaven? Revelation 21, the verse 27, there shall in no wise enter into it anything that defileth, neither whatsoever worketh abomination or maketh a lie, but they which are written in the Lamb's book of life. Our text in Revelation 7, 14 identifies all of those who are in heaven already and whoever will be there. These are they which have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. Fuse both texts together. Revelation 7, 14, Revelation 21, 27. And here's what you have, the only highway into heaven. Those who enter there must have their names written in the Lamb's book of life. And the only way to have your name entered in this Lamb's book of life is to be washed from your sin in the blood of the Lamb. That's the way. The only way. And I'm looking to Bishop John Charles Ryle again. This is the way you must walk in if you would ever stand with them in glory. You must lay aside all pride and self-dependence. You must use the publican's prayer, which is, God be merciful to me, a sinner. You must lay hold on the cross of Christ with a simple childlike faith and pray that you may be washed in His blood and pardoned for His name's sake. And then old Ryle threw out a challenge And the challenge was this, show me another way of salvation which will bring you peace at the last. I cannot find one in the Bible. Though the saints of God do form a multitude which none can number, I cannot read of one, not one, who had not washed his robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. On the happy golden shore, where the faithful part no more, where the storms of life are o'er, meet me there. When the night dissolves away into pure and perfect day, I am going home to stay. Meet me there. I pray you will.